Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of A Stab in the Dark, the UK TV podcast that investigates the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama that trudges through dark, lamplit streets, lights up a French cigarette and launches into a five-minute interior monologue that almost certainly has a moody jazz soundtrack. My name's Mark Billingham and today in our own ad hoc version of 221B Baker Street, actually a dressing room in King's Place somewhere in North London, I'm thrilled to say that I'm joined by one of the hardest working and most creative minds in TV drama, none other than co-creator and writer of Sherlock, Mark Gatiss. We'll be talking to Mark about his novels, his love of horror and Victoriana, and of course, Sherlock. We have to talk about Sherlock. So, fire up your pipe, better yet, fire up three pipes, pull on your deerstalker, and settle down in a nice comfy corner of your mind palace. Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Mark, welcome to Stab in the Dark. Thank, thank you, you very jo- much. Thank you for joining us. Now, your career in TV has been incredibly varied. You've been in Game of Thrones, you've played various characters in Doctor Who, a reverend in Midsummer Murders, Peter Mandelson in Coalition, you've appeared in period dramas like Map and Lucia, Sense and Sensibility in Taboo, you were Fanny Craddock's husband Johnny in Fear of Fanny, which I've managed to say without giggling like a child. There's still time. There's still Okay then. <laughs> uh, Ratty in Wind in the Willows, Bamba Gascoigne in Starter for Ten. Mark, to what degree is your choice of roles dependent on how much dressing up you get to do? Well, I used to be very much about dressing up. The older I get, the more I'm I'm very much persuaded by the notion that someone is just wearing a, sh- a shirt and trousers. Oh, right. You get actually taboo may have been the final straw in terms of sheer physical uncomfortableness. <laughs> the fat suit and the and the prosthetic. I was genuinely like Oh my God! This is a young man's game. <laughs> this is, and uh, because of the nature of it, I, they uh, they had to kind of keep darting in. It's like a sort of A and E, because because the the rubber was it's moving melting. Yeah, things. it was melting. It was so hot, and um, not sexually. Uh, no, that's that's for the viewers to decide. Um, but I ended up sort of looking like a bruised testicle because because they were just repairing it all the time, you know. But anyway, it's still obviously it's it's a lot of fun. But there's also there's a lot to be said for you know a nice suit or a t-shirt. <laughs> it's a pair of speedos. Yes. Too much effort. Yeah, but even I mean, even back in League of Gentlemen days, there's always a lot of oh. dressing up, embracing that that whole aspect of character. I think it's why I mean, it really is why you get into. Interacting is an extension of the dressing up box. You know? Is it? Is it was something yeah. you, you like to do as oh, a kid? Yes, absolutely. And also in disguise, you know, I had I had a proper several makeup and disguise kits, and uh, I had one uh, marketed by Dick Smith, who did The Exorcist and Little Big Man, and and I was as with uh, Reese Shearsmith, actually um, when he left uh, school, he did a year uh, with. Um, the guy, oh my God, what's his name? Chris, Chris, Chris. The guy who designed the elephant man's makeup. He actually, he wanted to do that. And we, we have a similar sort of love of, of, of those kind of, of prosthetics. And, uh, you know, when you, you do, it does make a huge difference to, to a part when you feel like you're not yourself. Whether it's a, a yeah. facial hair or a wig or teeth or, or glasses or, or contact lenses. It, you know, as soon as you don't feel like yourself, it's a big help. 
Yeah, but there's a difference between a pair of dodgy false teeth and, as you say, something like you were, you were doing in Taboo, which is a, a big makeup job. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is, what, an hour and a half in makeup? Five or something? hours. Just for that, five hours? Yeah. And it, uh, is it true that you've kept... Is, it, is there a Doctor Who prosthetic that you kept? I wish I'd, I could show you a picture okay. of oh, my room. You're going to have to describe got, it for yes, the listeners. Yes, I've got my Doctor Who prosthetic from the Lazarus experiment. Um, I've got a pair of prosthetic breasts from a play I did. We've all got a pair of prosthetic breasts. Vic. I've got, I've got a, a wonderful head from the M.R. James ghost story I directed. and It's, it's horrible, really. It's, it's going to become sort all, of... They're all burglar deterrents. Yes, yeah, some weird museum after you're <laughs> yes. gone. People or will come round. Sherlock Holmes did, you know, having a wax model of yourself in the window in case anyone wants to try and assassinate me. <laughs> such such a variety of roles. I mean, I mentioned, you know, just just sort of uh, just touching the surface of them there. Is it is it a silly question to ask if you've got a favourite? Well, a lot, really. I mean, I did. I love playing Peter Mandelson. Um, you know, Mycroft Holmes is a version of him anyway. So there's a lot of... Mandelson around my career, and I found him fascinating. Uh, Wind in the Willows, I particularly loved doing. Although it was, we were in Romania for three months, uh, me and Lee Ingleby and Matt Lucas and Bob Hoskins, and uh, it was quite grueling. But it was a bit like sort of being shipwrecked together. We all bonded, and we had a lovely time on that. Um, obviously, being in Doctor Who has always been a life's ambition, so that's uh, been fantastic. And and Sherlock, everything really. Um, very few that I haven't enjoyed. I so is there a common thread between them? I mean, you say, you know, Mandelson is a, is, is a version of, uh, you know, Mycroft is a version of Mandelson. Um, the, the, the Prince Regent in Taboo seemed to me, uh, without sounding pretentious, I think somebody said this to me the other day, quite a Brechtian performance. In the, <laughs> it's, they said your feelings about the character were writ large. Somebody uh, said to me, all over my yeah. Face. But I mean, is, is, there, is there some kind of link, something where you kind of go, yeah, that's a part uh, yeah, I, I mean, can the, really it, know. There's an interesting thing happens where you, it happens to all, I just think, where you, I used to, around the time I was doing Johnny Craddock and, and that priest in Midsummer Murders, etc., I was playing a lot of broken husbands. Right. It's like a theme, you know, to the extent where I actually think I've got to stop doing that now. And um, I've been recently playing a lot of colonels. Uh, I've obviously entered that phase and a lot of patrician characters uh, like Mycroft, like Stephen Gardner in Wolf Hall, like Mandelson himself, who are the sort of person who stands behind the throne whispering in the king's ear. And that's obviously what I'm currently doing. Uh, And what I need to do next is probably play, I don't know. um, uh, Well, I'll tell you what I'm playing. I'm playing um, Robert Cecil who was James the first spymaster in Gunpowder, which is on, I hope, in November. Okay. And I, actually, it's, it is a, a, sort of, a sort of another iteration of, of the power behind the throne. But it, with, it's, it's slightly different, as he was a four-foot-four hunchback. Um, they obviously thought of me. And I am <laughs> hinting towards his uh, infirmity. <laughs> why, do you, why does that happen, though? Why do, why do casting directors and directors and producers suddenly go, broken husband, oh, we need Mark Gatiss, and then they go, oh, sort of patrician, Machiavellian character, we need Mark... How does those shifts happen? Well, I, you, I, the shifts happen because you do it yourself, if you're able to. Or you play, you suddenly do... I you do, do one part particularly yeah. well, and then you... And then, and then suddenly you, that's all you're off. Right. But I, I did, when I was in London Spy a couple of years ago, I got an enormous amount of attention from playing this very seedy... Uh, drug dealer and uh, that was one of those moments when people went oh my god I didn't know it was you and, and then you know I'm still waiting for more CD drug dealers who kiss Ben Wishaw to come my way uh, now is the time me. to advertise <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah but I think it's true I mean if you 
if you look at someone like Joanna Lumley, she would have probably spent her whole career playing slightly glacial upper upper class women until she played Patsy. Mm. And then I think probably all she's ever, in fact, she told me, uh, she told me that all she's ever offered is essentially sort of slightly drunken right. <laughs> um, uh, ex-models now. And, and what she'd love to do is show her versatility. Well, you, something you hinted at then when you were talking about the Wind in the Willows is, is this sort of the collaboration, which is something that seems to have marked out an awful lot of the stuff you've done. League of Gentlemen, obviously a collaborative effort, Doctor Who, Sherlock, which we will talk about later. So what is it... A, so appealing about working as part of a team. Well, I, I mean, ask anyone who's in a in a happy or successful team. I mean, the, the it's like being in a band, I suppose. And you, there's a there's a group sensibility, like we had with the league. It was we're all kind of brought together by a similar sense of humour and just getting just having a good laugh. And then Steve Moffat and I have known each other for years and have collaborated on various things it just you know if it works then you sort of cherish it and also it's it's much less lonely yeah well that this is what i want to come on to because you also write novels of course which is a which is a completely different experience do you need both those things it's like you know having you you sit there on your own working on a lucifer box novel now god i need to go out and work talk to people and go out and be involved with a team in a way i mean i particularly like um if i've been sort of stuck behind a desk for a while if i then go and do a play particularly and you suddenly find yourself in a room with basically a lot of new people and you've got weeks and weeks to spend on one particular thing. I, I find that the social aspect of that is really attractive. But it's not so much about feeling kind of isolated and lonely. It's, it's because the, there's also a wonderful thing about being completely, as they say in Seinfeld, master of your own domain. Mm. You can actually um, think, right, this is me, this is my thing. But equally, it's it's so great to have any kind of sounding board. I can't tell you how many times I've... I've been faced with what feels like an intractable problem, and and one or two conversations with a, with a friend, to sort of freeze it up. It doesn't even have to be, you know, it's like it doesn't even have to be the answer. It's just like oh, it makes you think slightly differently. Yeah. And I think that's one of the really appealing things of of team writing or or any kind of collaboration. I, I think there's certainly no. Uh it's not coincident. It's not coincidental that most of the great comedy is is written by teams, certainly or, or, or yeah. double acts or whatever. Yeah. Um, you you need that sounding board. You have got to bounce things off people. Things just get funnier and funnier when you mm. start sharing them. Don't you? <laughs> well, in th- yeah, that, that is the theory. In theory. Um, so I mentioned the Lucifer Box novel. So where did where did Lucifer Box first come from? And why it was that? a it was a commission out of the blue from uh, an editor at Simon and Schuster to write a book, and, I, and in that slightly terrifying blank page way, I thought. I'd love to. What? But it wasn't something you'd, you'd thought about doing before? Only, only and then what I said, I went out for lunch and I said, you know, the thing I'd sort of, somewhere at the back of my head, I've always quite fancied doing is a sort of Edwardian James Bond. Right. And that's really where it came from. So it was, um, it was, and I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of crime fiction. And I suppose the, the, the idea of creating, you know, of having one of those moments where you think, well, what's my detective? Like, yeah, oh, what's my I can create from, yeah. from scratch. Yeah, and of course you, then you then you run up against all the usual problems, which is like, so many things have been done, um, the way that uh, Christie sort of drew lines from Sherlock Holmes to get Poirot. I think it's, it's oh yeah, Poirot. oh yeah, and 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 then and then you go through all those lovely, sort of semi-forgotten ones like um, Max Carados. The, the blind detective, and you have to think, what's what's my detective's thing? Because they all have to have a thing. But did, and, and did the era come first? You'd already decided uh, I want I to guess, set it. In the- yes, yeah. I mean, it's always been, 
it's always been a sort of favourite of mine. Why? Why is that era so appealing? I don't to know. You? I think I've really from childhood. I had a I had a top hat when I was a little boy. <laughs> I did. Uh, yeah, a, sort a, of a like, top hat and a sort of dressing up box and a yeah, prosthetics a, a kit. Yeah, all those things. Yeah. And, and it's just always I love it. I think it's you know I love Conan Doyle and Edgar Rice Burroughs and H.G. Wells. I've always had a kind of affinity for it, really. But I have to, funny enough, the thing is, you, you your taste change and my, mine have really changed. I feel slightly like I've. As you, maybe you'll see on in, uh, Saturday in my new Doctor Who, although I don't know when this is going out, but my next Doctor Who, the Victorians are on Mars, and it's a sort of Edgar Rice Burroughs, H.G. Wells kind of tribute, yeah. bank holiday tribute. And I, and I find that sort of story really easy to do and great fun to do. But having said that, I, I do like the challenges of a totally new era. And and, I, and as I've got older, I, I sort of, my tastes have changed. I, I feel like... I suppose steampunk Victorian, that kind of thing, it feels a bit done now. And I'm much more interested in other other periods, really. But that period was was incredible just, just for crime writing. I mean, oh. just some of the people you've mentioned, obviously, you know, Conan Doyle, Wilkie Collins, Edgar Allan Poe, we can probably chuck Dickens into the mix. Yeah. Why, I mean, what, what was it about that era that threw up people that, that you know, were writing detective fiction to that level i mean well it's you know it's not the golden age which is no. later but it's it really is the beginning of some i mean it's who, who knows which which is the first one well poe has a claim collins has a claim inspector bucket is i know. think the first detective yeah, the first yeah. sort of detective inspector or whatever but i don't i don't know but i know that, right. that came about because dickens uh edited a series of articles for his um magazine either household works or all the year round which was about real policemen mm. and it was very popular and I think he probably saw something in that thinking actually this you know this has got something he's got yeah. something the investigative element and, and like all these things you think people sort of back into them they don't actually think I think I might create detective fiction today it just suddenly becomes something and then obviously the Moonstone and uh, and DuPont and it's all sort of at the same time in that way that you know how many people actually invented the light bulb? It kind of all happened yeah. at the same time. And the great thing I should imagine about about setting the Lucifer box novels when you set them, so many things you don't have to worry about that that those that set their detective novels in the modern day do. You don't have to worry about CCTV and mobile phones yes. and social media and all that. But research, I guess, on yes. the other, you know. And what I did with the, the the when I got to the end of the first one, I kind of thought because they were all meant to be Edwardian, and I was I had actually worked out stories for the other two. One was about absinthe. And one, one, they went to the moon. <laughs> of course they did. Um, and I thought, when I got the end, I thought, you know, I think I've sort of done all I want to do with this. So what I did was, I, I got, I just thought, oh, this is exciting. I'll make him twenty years older and set it in the twenties and thirties. Do it like a John Buck and Dennis Wheatley. And then the third one, when he's in his seventies, is set in the early fifties, and it's like early Fleming. So I sort of did the three big stages. Uh, and and made it loose for box into an old man by the yeah. end, you know, which was delightful because, as you say, it's a different thing, a different tons of exciting research and and the fun of it. Really. Well, that that same period is also um, the horror genre really started to gather momentum round about the same time. Obviously, horror is something that's very important to you. Was that something was that was there from an early age, along with the top hat and the, the yes, dressing up, the so. love of horror? You had all those those marvel those books of old Hammer well, horror books and so on. I had. Uh, the Herbert Van Thal, the, the pan book of horror, do you remember those? The, the, the little were, uh, compendium short uh, story yeah. books. And there was one particular one with a hand coming through, a grave with an eye in the middle. It just, I couldn't look at it, I was so frightened. First horror film I saw was Brides of Dracula. 
and I was four. And I've often told the story now, but I used to I used to sort of think that my parents were extremely liberal about it. And I, I've, I've said it so many times and it suddenly occurred to me that, oh no, we were just watching it because it's what my dad wanted to watch. Right. <laughs> it's actually the complete opposite. We just did what he wanted to do. Yeah, funny uh, enough, my wife is exactly the same thing, that she would sit up on a Friday night. It was always Friday night watching those Hammer, yeah. late night Hammer horrors. And it's a, a very fond memory she has actually of yeah. sitting up watching those well, films. Well, I've kind of, um, I've sort of resurrected it. Uh, I, I watch horror films on a Friday night where they should be. Uh, at least an hour earlier, because I always fall asleep there. But it, it sort of, there's something Proustian goes on. It, it, there's a flavour to Friday Night Horror, which has never gone away. And even though I'm now choosing what I put on, which is usually Italian, jello, uh, sh- uh, schlocky rubbish, it still feels like it's come on just after the sports report. And yeah. It's the last thing on Tyne Tees. I can, I can remember certain moments from watching those shows. The, the moment when, when Christopher Lee appears at the top of the staircase, you know, the first moment Dra- sort of Dracula appears, I can remember kind of jumping uh, out of a chair and Oliver Reed in Curse of the Werewolf and stuff. And that, I, God, how old would I have been? I mean, but I, I can remember them in much more detail than I can remember films I saw last week. Yes, absolutely. Weird well, they have, you know, it's, it's all formative stuff, isn't it? And you never quite, um, you never quite get rid of that. So that history of horror you did for, for BBC Four, that must have been like a, yes, please, this well, is yeah, the job I want to do. It, was the, it wasn't my idea. Um, I mean, that's the funny thing. It, it looks like it is, but BBC Bristol just emailed me saying, would you like to do a history of, a three-part history of horror films? I went, um, yes. <laughs> and, it, and that was that. And it, it was, you know, seven years ago now, and I got so many people just in time. Gloria Stewart, who was in The Old Dark House and The Invisible Man was 100. Oh, my God. By the, by the time it broadcast, three of them had died. And John Carpenter had a seizure the week of broadcast. And the producer texted me saying, is it, is it us? <laughs> <laughs> he was all right, though. John Carpenter. So as a fan of horror and a fan of crime, what do you think the two things, you know, what are the common threads between crime and horror as genre? Is it just the storytelling? Is it just that story is so important? Well, it is, isn't it, obviously? But it's, I think it's it's much more varied than that. There's a thing which you should call, I suppose, the romance of crime, which is I think we all something we all ascribe to. There is a there's a reason, maybe something very deep in the British psyche, a love of crime and murder, um, true life and detective fiction. There's the puzzle element in the best books. And the reason I would say that Christie survives and Dorothy L. Sayers doesn't is that Christie's books are brilliant puzzles. Sayers' books are actually rather good literature, but the, 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 the cases just aren't there. And what you actually want when you're sitting around the pool is a, is a puzzle. I think that's very key to it. That's true. I mean, a lot, almost every crime writer I know would say Sayers is a better writer than Christie, yeah. but Sayers is not the one who's still being adapted for sort of cutting-edge, you know, yeah. like TV dramas. Anymore. But, but, you know, there's a famous Billy Wilder quote, which I'm always requoting when he did Witness for the Prosecution. Um, a, a reporter sort of said, why are you bothering with this and he said um, Agatha Christie's characters uh, her dialogue I could write in an afternoon but her plots are like fucking ball bearing <laughs> and it's true and that's why that's why she survived she has much she had like 35 of the best ideas anyone's ever had for a detective story just one after another and actually not 
as cosy as people no, 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 suggest. No, no. I mean, you know, Agatha Christie was writing about serial killers. Agatha Christie did all sorts of stuff that is that is still being replicated in one form or another. The latest thing I gather on the on the sort of crime grapevine and talking to publishers and so on is the crime horror mashup, or certainly the crime supernatural mashup. Seems to be an awful Can we call lot it Crora? Crora or Hash. Better not call it Hash. Um, <laughs> ha- ha- I don't know what we call it. But anyway, it's coming. It, you know, there are a lot of Combi books out there like that. Let's call it that. Does, that. does that kind of light your candle, do you think, the idea of a, you know, a crime, a crime novel with a puzzle at its heart, but that has zombies and monsters running about? Probably not. Only because, as I say, my, my tastes change a lot, and I kind of like... Um, I, ghost stories are my favourite thing of all. M.R. James, you're big. Yeah. Why? Why what's, what's so special about him? I mean, I, I, I think suppose, you know, I love but... monsters and, and all kinds of... But I, I, there's just something very... lyrical and particular about tr- trying to scare someone. And if your story can actually scare you, that's an amazing achievement, I think. You know, it's actually not... It's not about horrifying you or if you can really frighten I, I've had that you, when you read a book and it actually makes your hair stun that's an amazing experience um, but also just the I love the paraphernalia of them really the mechanics of it, it was a ghost story and uh, it's what James always said that ghosts have to be malevolent that's it that was his big thing and obviously there are loads of different types of stories in which ghosts aren't they but his big thing was no 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 they're, they're out to get you and uh, I, I, I like that a lot um, so a sort of horror crime mashup I mean it, it's it's not really a new idea because there's lots of stuff which is like that. But if it's more, I suppose, if it's being more deliberate about, you know, a, a murder within a zombie apocalypse or something, then I suppose it's a new iteration, isn't it? Who cares about a murder within a zombie apocalypse, though, when you think about it? Yeah. I mean, the stakes aren't that high yeah. if, they're, if they're eating anybody that moves. One murder's not going to bother. I would <laughs> well, we will be talking to Mark a lot more after the break, quite possibly about a certain TV detective series. But before then, it's that time in the show when our roving reporter goes out and about to bring you more of the best crime fiction and TV crime drama. So with that, it's over to our man with the spyglass, Paul Hirons, who spoke to one of the stars of UK TV's very own Victorian and Edwardian set crime drama, The Murdoch Mysteries. Paul, it's over to you. <laughs> Yes, thanks, Mark. I'm here with the lovely Helene Joy, who plays Dr Julia Ogden, in Murdoch Mysteries. Now, if you haven't seen Murdoch Mysteries before, it stars Yannick Bisson as Canada's very own version of Sherlock Holmes, Detective William Murdoch, who solves crimes of Victorian era and later Edwardian era Toronto. And Helene's Dr Ogden is Murdoch's wife, a progressive pathologist and psychologist. And what's great about Murdoch Mysteries is that it's set at the dawn of the 20th century, where forensic detection techniques, science and pragmatism are just beginning to take hold in a world that has to get to grips with political unrest, the suffrage movement and lots of other social and spiritual shifts. So, Helene, welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Thanks for having me. Um, What do you particularly like about this period? Uh, Well... It's funny, I've, I've grown to love it over time. You know, um, the way in which I look on the show has always been a beef for me. You know, it, no matter what you do as a woman, when you go into Victorian times, you end up looking, you know, 10, 20 years older. It's, uh, it's extremely conservative, you know, and constrictive and all of those things. But the funny thing is, is over time, you start to really enjoy the formality of it because it's actually incredibly elegant and beautiful. What other aspects of the Victorian era that are difficult to kind of get your head around, would you say? 
Well, for me, it's just all of the formality that came with the dressing and the clothing and the appropriate behavior. You know, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around the fact that you, you just couldn't do and say and be the way you wanted to do and say, you know, be. Um, there were rules, uh, written and unwritten, you know. I mean, if you go back over the process of us getting divorced, of, of me marrying someone else and having to get divorced and marry again, the trouble, I mean, it's something we take for granted now is you can have choices, you can do what you please. But those choices just weren't there. And so life was, life was so much more difficult in so many ways. It was a particularly kind of volatile time, wasn't it? Yeah, it was an extremely difficult time worldwide for, for women. And uh, that kind of repression, I mean, after a while, physical repression and social repression you you know things have to break and this you know the turn of that century all kinds of things happened all over the world you know with the suffragettes and so our audience just absolutely loved seeing that storyline and, and knowing the history of it specifically in Canada I mean obviously we know a lot about the, what happened in England but in the other countries it happened even later and it happened you know with even more resistance and and uh so those storylines are fabulous and also, yeah, I mean, abortion and the fact that nobody, everything was illegal. I mean, young people today just have no clue what, what the freedoms are like and how difficult it was for women. So I love it that we touch on all of those things and there's, there's always uh, so much for Julia to be involved in. People keep going back to that period of time because it is a, a time of change. Do you think that's why it's so enduring, why people love to see those kind of stories? I honestly think that people crave history. You know, our, our modern culture is, is lacking, you know, and, uh, and I find that a lot of people, sort of young and old, want to see our heritage. Particularly in uh, Toronto, we don't have a lot of shows or any other shows that are talking about Victorian times in Toronto, and I think it's illuminating. People don't know the history of their own town. And just finally, Helene, um, have you always been a fan of Victorian crime fiction or drama or that period in particular I absolutely haven't I prior to doing this show wasn't really I can't think of one show I would have watched on the regular like that but since I've obviously embraced it and I I I love stuff that's in that period um and also outside of that period crime shows I've kind of gotten all into it um but yeah never before I guess 10 years. It just worn me down. I love it. Well, on that bombshell, I think we'll let you get back to your adoring fans. Thank you, Helene. Thank you very much. And if you want to watch Murdoch Mysteries, Series 7 starts on UK TV channel Drama from Saturday the 5th of August at 8pm. And just a quick word about the brand new Series 11, which you can watch on Alibi early next year. So that's about it from me and Helene. Back to you in the studio, Mark. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. So we're back with our special guest, Mark Gatiss. And before the break, we were talking about uh, your love of the Victorian and Edwardian eras, your love of the horror genre, of thrillers generally, which inevitably brings us to Sherlock. Um, so never we, heard of it. Never heard of him. Quite a popular show, apparently. Um, if we can go back to the start, you and Stephen Moffat sitting down in your office, wherever, where, where did the idea come from? You know, well, let's relaunch Sherlock. Let's reinvent Sherlock. Who, no, who we were on a train, it? which okay. is now rather, in my head, it's like the Paget illustration, you know. <laughs> Uh, we were chuffing along. There's, we're a, both the more, there's the more outside. <laughs> on, on a back projection. Yeah. Just going around in a psych. Yeah. Um, we were both working on Doctor Who, and uh, we've known each other for about 
25 years or 20 years, something like that. And um, we, we were always ended up sharing the same carriage. And uh, we just started talking about other things we liked, like James Bond and, and Sherlock Holmes. And um, we sort of did a slightly careful dance around admitting that we liked the Rathbone films the best of all of them. And actually, of those, the ones which were brought up to date. And in, a, in the dramatisation in which we've actually been amalgamated into one character, a ginger, grumpy Scotsman, um, <laughs> we, there would be a light bulb moment where I said, we should do that again. And it came about, most of the, the big idea was we were in the middle of another Afghan war. Uh, you know, mm. and, and I said, isn't it funny that uh, in the original stories, Dr. Watson is invalided from Afghanistan. You'll be in Afghanistan, again. I perceive. And it was like, just one of those like, oh God, that's a great idea. And, and from there, tumbled all these, oh God, this is exciting, isn't it? Because, you know, they could, they're still just, it's a flat share, isn't it? It's a flat share. They'd still live in Baker Street, probably above an Indian restaurant or something. And he'd be a, a kind of, younger we could do the first meeting oh my god you could do that he could be a younger geeky man who stays up too late on his computer nobody knows what he does this war hero comes back who's lost his will to live essentially they meet suddenly everything changes it's like it's ready-made and um it was so ready-made that it took us about three years to mention <laughs> it to Stephen's wife who was a producer and she went why the hell are we making it <laughs> and that's how it happened we just kept saying someone's going to do this it's a great idea because the, it, it it's the character that endures isn't it i mean uh, i'm a massive sherlock holmes fan and my my first exposure to him was was at, was at school at about 11 with a crazy maths teacher uh, who got bored in his own lessons and would pull a battered copy of the adventures oh. of Sherlock Holmes out of his bag. What a kind and, man. And he was Len Bowles, who was called. <laughs> and he would read us the, the short stories instead of teaching us maths. And even though a lot of those details of the plot, of, you know, I, you know, the, 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 the arcane details, of the, it's the character mm -hmm. that it straight away just gripped you. And just, well, we had, you know, the, the, what we realised, well, as soon as we kind of came up with that, was... Um, What's kind of got in the way for a long time is the are the trappings, and we thought as soon as you know, I think that the, the kind of, the one that really made us think was there was a, a version of Hand of the Baskervilles with Richard Roxburgh, where um, and Ian Hart, where um, he's being sort of pitched the case by Dr. Mortimer or Henry Baskerville, and they're in King's Cross Station or something, and he nips off and goes in the toilets and, and shoots up, and you're going no, it's he doesn't do it because he's an addict. He does it because he's bored. It was like, oh, this is, this, all this stuff is getting in the way. And actually, as soon as you strip it away and just go, it's exactly the same, except it's now, then the focus immediately falls onto the eternal brilliance of Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes and their characters and their friendship. And it was a, it was a very simple decision, heretical-seeming, except it had been done before, <laughs> and... And then everything just falls into place, you know. But I think that some of those things that people think are heretical aren't heretical. It's like you say, the trappings kind of get in the way. When, when, when the, the, the Guy Ritchie movie came out and, uh, you know, uh, Robert Downey Jr. is chasing about all the places, oh, they've turned Sherlock Holmes into an action hero. He was always an action yeah, hero. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, there was a, there was a, uh, a review of uh, the last series of Sherlock and, and he said exactly that. And I, I responded in verse, as Doyle did, to, to exactly that point. It was like... You know, have you not noticed? He, he is he is an expert 
boxer, yeah. uh, single stick and fencer. He is, he's always he's always knocking people out, <laughs> and uh, he's a, he's a man of action. That's what's exciting. He's also clearly a manic depressive. He has. He spends a fortnight sitting on the sofa just staring into space and then he can't be stopped and he doesn't eat and he, he's just got limitless energy. It's all, it's sort of textbook stuff, isn't it? And and mind like a racing engine. Uh, and it was always that thing of, for me that that uh, science was, you know, this incredible new force when Conan Doyle created yeah. this character and said, I'm not going to have a detective who soul things through intuition or God or whatever. It's it's this incredible new force. And you've updated that as well, that so science becomes, you know, all sorts of computing. Well, you know, there's a, there, was, there was a big question. There were certain things which were immediately, like, fun. Like, he's not going to smoke a pipe. So why don't we give him nicotine patches? It becomes a three-patch problem. There's lots of nice little jokes. Um, but he, and then we gave him the hat by accident, and then it becomes like it's still he's still wearing it, but he's wearing it because people expect him to wear it and that sort of thing. But there were the big the big one was like what about what about forensics because Doyle sort of invented it. So if everyone does it, what do we do? And and really, what we the, the answer we came up with was essentially the police do all that, but Sherlock is still the man in the room who can link the impossible together. So Lestrade will have all the DNA and all the fingerprints and everything. And then Sherlock will say, yes, but don't you see his shirt was untucked? And they go, what? And then everything follows from that. And really, it's, it's about still preserving him being the cleverest man in the world. But because all those little jokes are in there, you know, the free patch problem and so on, you're obviously a massive fan mm. of, you know, of Sherlock Holmes. Did you, have to, did you go back, reread all the stories? To be honest, no. I think it's all there. And what, what we always do is go... We go back to Doyle, really. If, you, if when we obviously when we're choosing stories to base them on, anything. but also if you if you're stuck, the best thing is just to go back to Doyle. Not even, as I say, not even necessarily necessarily for a, an answer. You, you'll find it just by spending time with him again, because he's just so brilliant. And I've, I've said this many times, but there's a, a beautiful little story called The Case of Identity, which is an early story. I think it's the third or fourth story, and it's very hard to dramatize because it works on paper. It's about this girl who, uh, whose um, engagement is broken off. And uh, her fiancé is very softly spoken and wears dark glasses. And it's actually her father, her stepfather, who doesn't want her to leave home because if she gets married, he'll lose her income. So he basically meets her at a dance pretending to be this man called Hosmer Angel and then breaks her heart. And that's, that's what it is. But obviously it's quite hard to dramatise that. Right. But within the story... There are so many just sort of diamonds of little pieces of human observation and clever deductions and sweet little things. I've gone back to the story like three or four times because it's just got little nuggets of things that you can place elsewhere, you know. And, and Doyle is just so rich with that. Even, and also not, not just the home stories, but all his stories, because he was such a master, you can find these funny little nuggets or ideas which, which are forever useful and he I mean he was such an incredible character I mean it's almost you, you couldn't invent Conan Doyle could you you know the writer the, the adventurer the guy that played cricket for the MCC played football for Portsmouth all this you know absolute sort of renaissance man who also believed in fairies yes I know it's, it covers the lot it, one of my absolute favourite things in the whole canon is not Doyle it's Christopher Morley's introduction to the complete Sherlock Holmes because that I, I the first thing I had was the adventures which I was given as a present when I had German measles. And then I got the lot. And Morley's introduction is one of the most beautifully written things. 
it talks about the whole, basically the whole notion of fandom is all there. But also he talks about what an incredible man Doyle was. And he says exactly that. No one it, it conceivably no, you had this wake him breath. Up. <laughs> he was a whaler. He used to do this thing in the, in the Boer War. He used to send hidden messages to prisoner of war camps in South Africa. And uh, he used to prick out letters sending messages. But he always started with the third chapter because he introduced that the the people examining it would probably examine the first two chapters more closely and then give up. People always give up after three. And um, <laughs> all these amazing things. And then and then he became, his son died, then he became a spiritualist and believed in fairies. I mean, it's just, what a range. He, 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 he says he is an infracaninophile, a helper of the underdog, a lover of the underdog. Isn't lover of the underdog. I did a... a, a a speech for the Sherlock Holmes Society months ago, and, and Conan Doyle's whatever it would be great great grandson was there, and I couldn't stop staring at him because he looked so much really? like him. Yeah. And I was just imagining him with this sort of moustache, and well, it was, <laughs> it was just like it, it was really weird meeting him and shaking his hand. It was it was astonishing. How how quickly did Benedict Cumberbatch enter the the picture? Uh, well, he was our only choice. We did a, we we sort of we drew up um, a vast list of of everyone who was alive and was vaguely right. But it just it just clicked. Um, I'd worked with Benedict on Stars for 10. That's how I knew him. Um, Steve and Sue had just watched um, The Imitation Game. No. Steve and Sue had just watched Atonement. And we sort of crossed texts uh, about him. And it was like, you know, this is, there's something here. He came in to read... I read opposite him as Dr. Watson, and it was immediate. It was it straight? It wasn't, yeah. Was it? He nailed just it straight like, away. You just go, oh, this is just right. Then we saw about six six people for Watson, um, and all of whom were very good. But it was just you know, Martin read with Benedict, and it just lit up. And Steve leant over to me and said, "There's the show." Oh, it is, isn't it? It is the show. I mean, that that chemistry is obviously hugely important. But it's not. It's not just Holmes and Watson. I mean, it's you know, it's Holmes and and Mary. It's it's Holmes and Mycroft. It's it's a show about relationships. I think mm. you know the whole. But the, and that chemistry was there very early on, certainly between Benedict and, and Martin. Yeah, right? and then, and then we were very lucky. You know, there was a, actually episode two. Um, we, tr- we we didn't want it to become like a a, co- a family show as it were. So there's a different detective and sort of the strata and we try and then we thought, no, actually it is that. And and and, and really without it becoming too cozy, it's a sort of precinct show. You know, you, you do have that. I mean Mycroft obviously is only in two of the original stories, but he became uh, something to do with my involvement. Became much more of a fixture. To a greater or lesser extent, you sort of enjoy spending time with those. But people, the Mor- same as Moriarty, though, isn't it? I mean, it, again, it's one of those sort of myths about Sherlock Holmes yeah, yeah. that you know, oh, it's, it's, it's Mycroft and Moriarty, and no, yeah. however many few stories they appeared in, but, you, know, you need also, them. It's, it's the Rathburn thing again because you know they they did it was all almost always Moriarty, and if it wasn't Moriarty, it was someone who should have been Moriarty. You might as well call him Moriarty. Yeah. So uh, it's a sort of about printing the legend, and the big thing for us was the original plan was to do hour-long episodes. And we were going to bleed Moriarty in and only having him at the end of the first season. And then we made effectively a pilot, which was, uh, it wasn't really a pilot. We, we had the idea and they had a little bit of money left. So we made episode one and then, which everyone was very pleased with. And then the BBC, because of Wallander, as three, three, three nineties, um, had been a big success. They said, 
would you do it as three nineties? And we went. In fact, we, Stephen and I were having a Doctor Who meeting, and Sue rang and said they'll commission it today if you do three nineties. And we went, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how it happened. And but then that made that had a big immediate impact because as soon as you're doing film length stories, you you have to sort of bring everything up. So we brought Moriarty into the first episode as a as a notion, and by the end of it, they're already sort of having the first version of the Reichenbach yeah. Four, um, which you know. So you, it's just because film length just eats story, and 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 you have to have a a proper scale to it, I think. To, you know, so what we lost in that process, I think, was probably things like. We probably would have done bottle episodes where Mrs. Hudson and Lestrade have to solve a case because Sherlock's away or something like that. And you could still sort of do that, but it would be like 15 minutes of a larger episode. You know? So are there stories, without wishing to pin you down and go, are there any more? When are the, when, when's, it, when's it going to be on again? Are there stories that, you know, you haven't covered yet that you're... I mean, there's a lot of stories. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the you know... We, we haven't actually done both of our favourites, the Red-Headed League and, and uh, the Speckled Band. Um, we've done little references to things. But it's more, what we've always done is use them as a sort of jumping off point. Because, you know, with the best will in the world, if you actually dramatised one of the short stories, it would take 20 minutes. So you don't want to just sort of bloat it into something it isn't. There's, <clears throat> if you think of something like um, uh, Scandal in Belgravia, the first 50 minutes is is essentially the story, and then it takes off somewhere else. And uh, Hand of the Baskervilles is is the framework of the book with lots of other stuff. So it's not really a question of running out of stories. There's always stuff, and we've kind of we've regarded everything as canonical. Everything that's been done, why not? Sherlock Holmes in Washington, Sherlock Holmes in New York. If there are if there are good things, there's a specific thing we quoted, i.e., stole from a Rathbone from the woman in green because it's just a fabulous moment which is Moriarty coming up the stairs and you can hear Sherlock playing the violin and he hears a creak on the stair and he stops and Moriarty stops and then he starts playing again and up he goes it's gorgeous it's sort of Hitchcock moment and you know you, you find those all over the place so um, there's still a lot to do I think what we've or lots we could do potentially we, we left the last series uh, in a in literally in Rathbone Place, as the last shot, um, sort of saying we, we could pick this up or we could leave it. What, what, what I think we realised completely retrospectively, and it wasn't our intention, is what we've done over the four seasons is do their backstory. And that wasn't the plan. But funnily enough, the whole idea of Sherlock and Mycroft having a more, compat- a more com- competitive relationship is from the Billy Wilder film, the Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, which is our favourite version. Um, and all those other bits and pieces, which saw Sherlock being much more troubled, we realised that actually we've got them to a place now where they'd be, if we did another, another one, it, they'd be sort of like the Rathbone and Bruce versions, as it were. They're, they're sort of comfortable in their skins. They're a little bit older. They've, they've now become the two men on the on the side of the fireplace that we usually see them being. Yeah. And we've we've kind of accidentally done how they got there. Right. Well, you say if we do if we do some more. Obviously, obviously the appetite is there from the from the public for you to do some more. I guess it's just a question of you all being available in the same place at the same time. You're hugely busy. I think that guy Cumberbatch has got a decent career on the go. Something like that. You know, he's probably doing some adverts. <laughs> um, but he, I guess it is just that, isn't it? Trying to find everybody's yes, availability. It's, it's, and... it's not lack of will. It's 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 a nightmare to schedule, and it was very very hard to schedule the last series 
because of Martin and Benedict's availability and Steve's and mine and everybody. But is and not, but there is there's all there is always genuinely that sort of faulty towers principle of let's just leave it, you know. And and we we've we've had the keys to Baker Street for a while, but the, one of the wonderful things is, you know. They're always shared. They're, they're shared while we were making it. Um, but, it, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying, right, that's our version. Somebody else go and do theirs now. So oh, People are listening really, to this and weeping into uh, their tea. I like Give it. them something. Give them, <laughs> dangle them something. Dangle them a carrot. I don't somewhere. know. I, I, we honestly, <laughs> don't, we, we, we don't have any immediate plans. But uh, I think if we, if, if we said, um, you know, would everyone like to do another one? Uh, I'm sure it met, we met with a very happy... Um, response. Okay, well, just before we finish, I do have to ask you about the the reboot of the of the Universal Dark Universe. These um, classic monster movies being remade. Johnny Depp as the Invisible Man and is that Javier Bardem as Frankenstein's monster getting refreshed. Yeah. Good, good news, bad news. I, I, my my terrible suspicion, i.e., I'm def- I'm sure it's a fact, is that all they want to do is very very quickly do House of Frankenstein because of Avengers Assemble. I think they want to do these films so they can very quickly have the Invisible Man. A big franchise, isn't it? Yeah. Because actually House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula are the original mashups. Did you know, amazingly, that RKO wanted Val Luton to do a mashup of his monsters, all of which are psychological horror films which don't have monsters in? They made a poster. The film was called They Creep by Night. Cat people. Cat people. Zombies. It's true. They're all creeping. They are it's all creeping, creeping things. Um, <laughs> but I think that's what they want to do. I didn't know they were doing Invisible Man. And but presumably, if they came, they came. Call, who? What, is there a monster you'd like to play? Is there a your monster of choice? Your creature of choice? I've done Dracula for audio, which I loved doing. That was a great treat. Um, well, they're all very attractive. I, I just want to work my way through the Aurora Glow in the Dark models. Right. <laughs> um, I, there's never been a great mummy film, and I, from what I've heard, oh, the, the new, new one, Tom Cruise one. But there's yeah. never been a great one. It's a it's a brilliant idea. I think that's never quite. Did the Hammer one, Christopher Lee? Oh, no, it's boring that film. It's sort of real time. It's and, I, and I'm going back three thousand years. Right. <laughs> it's got some wonderful bits in it, but I, it's a real slog. I don't think there ever has. I think it's a that's a tough one to get right. Um, but I like you know I love the idea of. People, you know, having a crack at these, they, they they keep coming back because they're always with us. Like, yeah, it's rather lovely that. But, but if equally, you were the mummy, you you're saying you'd like to get, you know, more attracted to parts now where there isn't quite so much dressing up and, and <laughs> no, it's discomfort. Do you know what I'd love to do. I think it would be a brilliant thing. Is something about Boris Karloff spending hours in the makeup chair with Jack Pierce. I think there's a two man play in that. That's a that's a good idea, because they had they had a very interesting relationship because they spent hours together while Pierce put the colloidal bandages on him and all that sort yeah. of stuff. Um, but, but ghost stories are my favourite thing, so I, that's what I'd like to do more of, definitely. Okay. Now, as promised, uh, in each episode we ask our guests to come along with, with recommendations for a good read and a good watch. So, Mark, what have you read recently? Well, it doesn't have to be recently. Something that you'd recommend to our listeners. Well, I have actually, funnily enough, uh, in the last year or so... Suspense. Um, <laughs> How do you create suspense? <laughs> have a cup of tea. Um, I I was researching something, and I came across this list of rare crime books. The titles of some of which were so hilarious that I probably ordered them all from Abe Books. Right. And th- this is no joke. There's a there's a, a novel called They Rang Up the Police. 
he should not have slipped. Um, death in hospital. <laughs> and uh, what's it called? Oh, gosh. Um, there's one about a vegetable marrow. I can't remember. Oh, what's it called? The girl in the vegetable, yeah, yeah. the girl but anyway, with but the it, vegetable but tattoo. I would re- actually, They Rang Up the Police is a very good book. That's the one I really liked, oh. despite its ludicrously prosaic title, uh, which is why I was rather, it's rather gripping. So I would recommend that if you could find it somewhere. Can you remember the author? Oh, I like it. I can, I can email you all. They, ra- they, they can only they do one book up. called They Rang Up the Police. I just love it. And Death in Hospital. It's so, well, go and get all so these. Ordinary. Go and get all these. And what about something uh, on TV that you've enjoyed? Well, it's re- it's just RuPaul's Drag Race for me, mm-hmm. which does have a sort of semi-murderous element. Uh, in terms of crime or horror, I don't know. Um, gosh, I tell you, what, I'm gonna I'll I'll slightly duck this if I may, because oh, it's called Vegetable Duck. That book. There we go. <laughs> it's called Vegetable Duck, which is a, a recipe I didn't know about, which is essentially a kind of vegetarian. Sh- um, thing with vegetarian mincemeat in a marrow. It's very popular in the 30s, and in the book is used to poison someone. And make it look like a duck? Is that why it's called vegetable duck? Know, it looks like a marrow. I've seen a picture, it just like, looks like a marrow. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, the thing I've been hugely enjoying are episodes of the 40s CBS radio series Suspense. Uh, which are all available, almost all on free online. They're roughly half an hour long, and I when I go running, I listen to them. And it's The Man in Black, the original version. And they're just fantastic. Most of them written by John Dixon Carr, okay. scored by Bernard Herrmann, and fantastically hokey, uh, but delightful. And as they get more and more popular, they get the most incredible people. I've just listened to uh, Sorry, Wrong Number, which is what the film's based on, with Agnes Moorhead. Uh, Orson Welles is in one. Uh, they do the ABC murders with Charles Lawton and Elsa Lanchester. And they're just fantastically... It takes you straight back, 1941, this crackly East Coast broadcast of these often very neat little stories, lots of locked room mysteries and stuff. You should, you should, you should listen to Sorry Wrong Number after you've listened to They Rang Up the Police. <laughs> surely one is a sequel. Um, that, that is about it for this episode of A Stab in the Dark. In this episode, what have we learned? Well, we've learned that Mark liked Sherlock Holmes because he got measles and that he got a top hat instead of Sabutio for Christmas. Uh, we'll be back again next time with more fantastic names from the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama. But in the meantime, you can find out more about A Stab in the Dark at UKTV uk slash a stab in the dark or get in touch with us on twitter hashtag a stab in the dark plus don't forget to review us on your podcast app your feedback really does make a difference so if you like the show please rate and review us if you don't well that's entirely up to you obviously but remember i am the napoleon of podcast hosts and my revenge will be swift and merciless oh and just a quick reminder you can watch the very best crime drama every day on uk tv channels alibi and drama so with that it's a huge thank you to my very special guest mark gatis and thanks to our producers Paul Hirons, Joel Porter and John Lemon. My name's Mark Billingham and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.